Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk about journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, the ABC made the news this week with figures released by GetUp showing that since the coalition government came into power federally, the ABC is worse off to the tune of more than three quarters of a billion dollars, which is an awful lot of money. In this edition, we ask what impact has this had on our public broadcaster and what will impending staff cuts mean for the health of the ABC and our media in general? There was startling news in the media last week too, with the announcement that the Australian journalist Mark Stefano had been suspended from the Financial Times for listening into a private Zoom meeting between senior managers at the Independent and Evening Standard. Come the weekend, Mark had resigned. So in this edition, we ask ethically, where is the line for journalists and is there ever a good reason to cross it? To help us through these funding and ethical conundrums, we're joined remotely, of course, by two senior journalists. Paul Barry is the host of ABC Media Watch. He is a Walkley award-winning journalist with an impressive list of career highlights, from working at the BBC to Channel 7, Channel 960 Minutes, and, of course, Four Corners on ABC TV. He has also written critically acclaimed books on Alan Bond, Shane Warne and Jamie Packer. Paul Barry, welcome to Fourth Estate. And Stephen Brooke is a freelance journalist whose writing can be found in Crikey and the Sydney Morning Herald, among other places. He's been a media editor at The Australian and he's also been features editor at the same paper and deputy editor for mediaguardian.co.uk. Stephen, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Well, okay, we all know the ABC has been doing some amazing work in 2020 from covering the bushfires in an extensive and vital way to now informing an anxious nation through the coronavirus crisis. We also know the ABC has been doing it tough, not just lately, but over a number of years. Cuts and so-called efficiency dividends have taken their toll and the ABC is on course for major cuts this year and these cuts are almost certainly going to hurt. From figures put together by the think tank per capita for GetUp, we know that the ABC is worse off to the tune of $783 million since 2014. Now, how has that affected the ABC? But before we get to that, think of this. 50% less scripted drama is now produced by the ABC. Classic FM does less live broadcasts and Lakeline on ABC TV is actually no more. And they're just a few of the most visible signs of the cuts. The ABC's managing director, David Anderson, will in July release his plans to make up for the budget shortfall and few expect anything other than more pain, more major cuts. Paul Barry, $783 million, that's a lot of money. What do you make of that figure? Do you think it's real? Well, let me say I didn't know we were going to talk about ABC cuts, and I'm absolutely not an expert on them, and I haven't looked at the at the budgeting detail. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter uh, savaging that report, admittedly from you know the right, and they're all saying they're not real cuts. This is just cuts to money that would that ABC would have had had it um, you know had its budget as planned. Clearly, though, there have been cuts. Um, there have been some pretty hefty cuts. I wouldn't want to put a figure on them, but there certainly have been some hefty cuts. And there have been some pretty savage job losses. And it is getting tougher and tougher and tougher 
to produce the output of the ABC, which is much larger than it was, um, has been in the past. And it's much harder to uh, get money to travel anywhere. Obviously, of course, with coronavirus, you can't anyway. But there are more and more demands on the ABC and there's less and less money to fill it. And the consequence is that people are losing their jobs and that um, drama is being cut and that there are, you know, there's tightness in the budget everywhere. And that there comes a point at which that becomes, I don't know, just more and more difficult to, to run an organisation um, as it should be run. Do you think in an odd way, though, that the coronavirus might actually save the ABC a few pennies, given that nobody can travel, that there are restrictions on what can be produced? Well, it might for a, for a short time, but um, it's not going to... I mean, travel will come back eventually, and mm. it will be possible then, then to go overseas or to go around the country and, and report on stuff properly face-to-face. I mean, at the moment, a lot of that's being done either by remote control, by getting reporters um, or cameramen overseas to do it, or by doing it on Skype or Zoom. Um, it's not, you know, that's only going to be a temporary respite. And and sooner or later, the, the, the cuts are going to bite. I've heard talk of a thousand job cuts. Uh, that seems to me to be an awful lot of people. Um, and that is certainly going to be very painful if it's anything like that. So, Stephen, as someone from outside of the ABC, but somebody who does keep a close eye on what's going on at the ABC, what do you think? Do you think that that $783 million figure is real? Because it does sound like a lot. And, and do you think that we can actually see the impact of, of, uh, of those cuts? Okay, so there's always a suspicion from outsiders that the ABC, if it's not overfunded, is perhaps not as efficient as it might be. Uh, journalists talk about the fact that they go out on jobs and they see extra ABC staff at a greater level than you might have with commercial rivals. What is clear, though, and we can take ourselves back to the figure that everyone remembers, which was the eight cents a day. This was part of a 1980s marketing exercise by the ABC under then managing director David Hill, who wanted to pressure the Hawke government into leaving the ABC alone. Well, in 2018, the ABC held a launch, which was kind of a bit of a reset about its future purpose, where they revealed that in 1987 terms, the ABC's budget was now equated to four cents a day from every Australian. And of course, over that time, the ABC is doing far more. It has many more digital channels. It has made, uh, it has a 24-hour news service. Uh, What it does have is a lot fewer staff where you can make savings there. And I would suspect it has a lot more co-productions, particularly in drama. There's very few sole ABC productions now. They tend to be co-productions, sometimes with overseas streaming channels, sometimes with private production companies that are run by the talent. But that's not a bad thing, is it? No, I think that is a way that the ABC is doing more with less. Because obviously, right at this minute, we could say Mystery Road, very expensive looking drama production, probably couldn't be made if the ABC was the sole funding organisation involved. So uh, you can have streaming channels, you can have other production houses, you can have government funds such as Screen Australia, Screen New South Wales, etc. If you tend to be a student of end credits, as I am a bit, you can see these names, uh, company names and institutional names flash up all the time. But uh, with the forthcoming announcement by the managing director, David Anderson, he has already flagged in the media that some of his cuts might involve an entire channel going. Uh, He was very nonspecific about what, but that seemed to me to be a softening up exercise, if you like, for the fact that 
the funding announcement when it comes, which is the ABC meeting the government's, uh, I think it's about $84 million that is a cost that it will not know, have any more due to the freeze in indexation. He's saying that the cuts could be that deep. So, Paul, then, you know, if you accept all of that, is it likely then that the biggest impact, if there are deeper cuts to be made, is likely to be felt most in news and current affairs? Well, I think there will be certainly an impact in news and current affairs. And I would imagine that's where the largest budget is. Um, But I think they will continue to outsource, you know, more and more of the non-news stuff and um, like documentaries and drama and, and entertainment and all that stuff. I mean, a lot of it is already but I'm sure that process will continue because mm. that allows them to get rid of people. Mm. And, yes, I'm sure it will be. Uh, there will be cutbacks in news and current affairs, and that will be in terms of, of people and possibly programs. Um, Stephen was saying that the, you know, his experience, the ABC, or he hears that um, more, the ABC send more people to news, news uh, conferences or um, stories than other media do. I've actually worked in commercial media, both in on nine and seven, and I've also obviously worked at the ABC. And I can assure him that's absolutely not true. It may have been once upon a time, but nowadays everyone works on the bare bones. Um, we used to, for Four Corners, for example, send out a cameraman, camera assistant, um, sound man, lighting person, sometimes even a lighting assistant. So you certainly have four, if not five. Mm-hmm. Nowadays it's two. And if you go on virtually any other um, news or current affairs, you'd have one person, cameraman, doing the lighting and the sound and everything, and sometimes the reporter doing the whole lot. So, you know, we're all, all commercial and, um, and ABC are doing that, but it's, there's no fat to be cut there. So it is, it is in terms of coverage and people and programs, I think, that you, you see it. I do think we should also point out that the ABC is not alone, even though the reasons for the cuts might be different. It's commercial rivals, both in print, i.e. digital, online, but also in television, are facing massive funding shortfalls, not just because of the shutdown of the economy, but also because of the funding environment. Their bread and butter advertising revenue has crashed. So you have local and regional newspapers that are shut down. They might not come back. You have magazines that have been pause that might not be coming back you have newspapers are a lot thinner and i think you have channel seven which has axed its main current affairs program sunday night uh, with no replacement yeah the pain the pain is certainly pretty widespread now i wonder whether either of well, you- can, can i just say that i absolutely agree with that i think that's absolutely right i mean the, the abc is certainly not alone in suffering but you could argue that in those circumstances if regional media for example is closing down there's a gap that the ABC is likely to have to fill. And if um, the commercial television programmes or, or stations no longer have the capacity or, or willingness to produce in-depth current affairs, then again, that's something that you think the nation, that Australia actually needs the ABC to do. So, yeah, so I think it's, that it's not clearly, like, you know, well, they're, they're suffering, therefore ABC also needs to suffer. You could put the argument the other way that they're suffering, therefore the ABC needs to come in and fill the gap. Well, I think this will inform management's thinking as they work out what they're going to do. And there's a two-day board meeting coming up where proposals are going to be put to the board. I was going to say I thought news and current affairs would be the last man standing in terms of being inoculated from these cuts. And I think that uh, the bushfire crisis and the coronavirus crisis has shown the importance of ABC News and Current Affairs, uh, the audience has voted with its feet and inflated the viewing figures. 
But I tend to think that Paul's point means that maybe rural and regional services will also have to be inoculated from these cuts because you are right, Paul, the collapse in advertising for a lot of these regional titles and subsequent closure of some very, you know, 100, 150-year-old regional newspapers means that uh, if the ABC is not there covering the issues and news in these areas, no one is. And, and it's interesting that you bring that sort of that issue up, uh, Stephen, about how the government will will view the ABC's performance. Because, I, and I wonder what both of you think, whether given the extraordinary role that the ABC has played in the coverage of the bushfires and the coronavirus, if the government might just, you know, look at it a little bit more kindly and recognise the role that it does play. Any chance of that? Do you think, Paul? Um, well, no. I think the ABC has been trying to push that argument for the last six months or so. Um, but never has it been but, evident, has and it? It's, and, and they've not been getting a sympathetic hearing at all. I mean, the, the, the figures were put on these cuts back in the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I probably am, but the, the last budget in May um, 2019, weren't they? So we've known for an awfully long time that they were coming. Mm. And David Anderson has been trying to stave them off either by... Um, savings on things like property and leases and uh, agreements with Foxtel and all those sorts of things. But he's also at the same time been saying to the government constantly, he and Ida Buttrose, look, we're doing a fantastic job. Um, the bushfires mean we've had to, you know, increase our coverage. Our ratings are going up. The, the public loves us. Surely you can um, relax some of these cuts and give us a bit of money back. But the answer has been no. And in a way, it's not surprising given that, uh, there was a there was a um, an atmosphere of austerity for everyone, and it's you know fair enough the ABC should 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 join in with that. But I think that attempt to to say well we're doing a fantastic job and our workload has increased that's that's fallen on deaf ears. It's not not got a good reaction. Paul is right. I just wanted to add there. Paul is right in terms of that they haven't uh, swung the government round on funding, but there's been a very significant change after Scott Morrison replaced Malcolm Turnbull and also Senator Mitch Fifield was dispatched to the United States, the communications minister, to be replaced by Paul Fletcher. And what has fallen on deaf ears within the government, I think, are the culture war attacks on the ABC that popped up very regularly, like clockwork, with the Turnbull government, which would criticise a whole raft of ABC programmes and reporting very regularly. The communications minister even wrote to ACMA, the regulator, saying, I think you need to look at these issues. Mm. In contrast, Scott Morrison could not run away from those kind of conflicts fast enough. Paul Fletcher has barely raised a peep in protest at ABC programming the whole issue of uh, ABC bias is still quite strong in News Corp, in the pages of The Australian and on Sky News, but you're not getting situations where I don't know, Tony Abbott led a boycott of Q&A. There is no way that Scott Morrison would ever contemplate such a move. Mm. And so what about the national, what role do you think the National Party has here, particularly with the, with regional outlets closing at a rate of knots? Do you think that they might get cold feet about some of the cuts being imposed and, and, and be pressuring um, their, part, their, their coalition partners to, you know, to, to lay off? Um, no idea. But um, if, it, if that were to happen, I would imagine it would be a special, um, you know, it would be hypothecated to the regional services. So it would be 
okay, we'll give you 30 million back to, to cover these specific regional projects. I don't think it's going to be a, a general softening of the of the cuts, but I don't know whether that's happening. Mm -hmm. I'm, I mean, historically, the, the nationals have loved the ABC yes. and have not really conducted any of that culture war stuff. And I, and I absolutely agree with Stephen that that has abated. And it's, uh, I tell you, it's a great relief as someone who works inside the ABC to come to work and not be um, attacked every day for a change. So, okay, now last week the, the Prime Minister's office officially complained about a story from, uh, from Dylan Welch as being unnecessarily alarmist was on the, on the COVID-19 app. Now, uh, government complaints about stories in the ABC aren't new. This surely won't be the last one. Should we be reading too much into this complaint coming at this particular time, Stephen? No, I thought, in fact, the quantum of the complaint and the way that it came out in the media, I think it was in the Australian's diary column, uh, showed that this is not really even a live issue. They Even they couldn't get that enthused about it. Previous complaints from the Prime Minister's office or from the Prime Minister himself would get on the front page of the newspaper. So this seemed to be a very uh, targeted complaint, if you like, about a very specific story with uh, quite a sort of subtle or nuanced point that they wanted to make. And to me, that just reinforced that the whole atmosphere has gone from DEFCON 4, if you like, in terms of government ABC relations down, you know, way down to they've really turned the temperature down on this. And it was notable only because of its rarity in this day and age. Okay, I'll wind up the discussion on the ABC by asking you both at this time when government expenditure is so massive in the face of coronavirus, where industries are looking to have to restructure reform, why not the ABC as well? Particularly given that, you know, we know that Australians sit down at night time and watch Netflix and Stan. How sustainable is the current model of public broadcasting? With with the current in this current environment, and, and and why should the ABC not look inward and at, at major changes that could possibly be made to uh, make itself more efficient? I'm a big fan of that. I I think that it should be doing that, and I hope that when David Anderson comes out over the plan that he is formulating. I think July is the timetable for this announcement. I hope that is just not we are cutting this, but it is we are recasting the ABC for it to be relevant in uh, the digital age. If you remember, Michelle Guffrey actually came in and uh, recast some quite good reforms in the very early part of her reign with some restructures and she got rid of several divisions and she had a flatter management structure, which was taken to be a sign of the influence of her time in Google. So I do think that David Anderson needs to decide what is important. What is important about the ABC? Is it religion, arts, uh, culture? Is it drama? Is it news and current affairs? Is it the regions? And then perhaps decide, well, what isn't important? And one uh, division of the ABC that is criticised quite often as the ABC Life Project um, it has long been slated as being potentially a saving. This is where they sort of take lifestyle uh, information and repurpose it for a separate website. Uh, we shall have to see. Paul, what do you think? Do you think there's room for recasting here at all? Um, well, first of all, on the subject of efficiency, um, there was the Mansfield Review back in, what was it, 1995, which was supposed to find that the ABC was incredibly inefficient. 
it decided that it needed more money. Then there was the Lewis Review, which was a few years ago. That, that did not come out and say that the ABC was inefficient or that large amounts of money can be saved. And then there was a follow-up to that recently as well. So I really think this, this furphy that the ABC is incredibly inefficient and you can just review its uh, operations and save heaps of money is, is just not true. As for whether you, you need to focus on what it does and whether you reduce, which I guess you mean reduce what it does. Actually, let me just say also, being relevant in a digital age, the ABC website is now number one in Australia. It is doing incredibly well and it has been absolutely refocused and large amounts of people have been transferred to work on it. And I think if you, if you look at it nowadays, it is immeasurably better than it was a year ago. Now, there may also be some clickbait there and there may also be some stuff in ABC Life that I personally... Um, don't have a great huge amount of time for. Um, but if you took that away, you would um, lose audience for the website. And if you argue, you can argue that um, the purpose of the ABC is to is to broadcast or to communicate with all Australians. So you would lose some of that audience. Uh, you know, that, there's, there's an argument to be had there. I'm not sure which side I come down on. But if you focus on making on narrow casting for the ABC or 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 targeting specific audiences like religion or arts or culture or things supposedly the market failure areas, you then get to a stage in, in, a, in a couple of years where the people who don't like the ABC or who, who oppose it ideologically say, well, look at the ABC. It's only actually broadcasting now to 10% of the, of, the, of the country. So let's chop its budget by another 50%. So I think there's a difficult um, balance about whether you're trying to serve all Australians or at least you need to serve enough Australians to make it relevant to everybody. Okay, we'll leave that discussion about the ABC there. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network. Our guests this week are Paul Barry and Stephen Brooke. For many of us, until very recently, the word Zoom was something we would have associated with a kid playing with a toy car. Fast forward to the present and the video conferencing platform Zoom is now an everyday part of our very chaotic lives. So the news that Australian journalist Mark DiStefano, working for the Financial Times, had been reportedly busted logging into a Zoom meeting between the Independent and Evening Standard senior management and their staff has made waves in the media industry. For those who don't know him, Mark is a high-profile journalist, and yes, he has been on Fourth Estate, and he was until recently working for BuzzFeed, both here in Australia and in the UK. He only started working at the Financial Times in January, and now that chapter is over at least for the time being. He's alleged to have logged on to Zoom using his work email before logging off and logging in again using a phone and remaining logged on for the entire meeting. For its part, the FT reported on a meeting in its paper and it quoted its source for the story as people on the call. Now, the Financial Times' own ethical code states the press must not seek to obtain or publish material acquired by intercepting private or mobile telephone calls, messages or emails. Engaging in misrepresentation or subterfuge can generally be justified only in the public interest and then only when the material cannot be obtained by other means. Seems pretty clear cut. So today we want to delve into the ethics of getting a good scoop in the modern world. Is this a case that guidelines have fallen behind the times or a case of bad practice? 
Oh, I think yes, but I think the FT had thought about that and decided in this case that there was a breach of its guidelines mm -hmm. and uh, De Stefano resigned subsequently. We have to remember that the British newspaper industry was brought to its knees by the phone hacking crisis, which involved journalists in an unauthorized way accessing the voicemails of people and listening to their mobile phone messages. To me, this seems to be an unauthorized access of another type of technology, albeit related. And there is debate in Britain as to whether the alleged incident would have been a breach of the Computer Misuse Act or not. So clearly, huge sensitivity in the British media industry for these types of incidents, uh, which is why I th uh, think partly explains why the Financial Times took such decisive action. Mm. Paul, do you think there's any comparison whatsoever between the kind of industrial scale hacking that we saw in the UK and this? Uh, yeah, I think the principle is exactly the same. I mean, you're you're invading someone's privacy and you're hacking into um, a conversation or um, communications that are not yours, that are not yours to, to 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 share. So I don't think there's any any problem with the FT getting rid of Decefno. I think he absolutely deserved it, and I don't think there's any need to withdraw to redraw ethical guidelines because I think they're already there. As to whether it's as bad as phone hacking, no, I don't think it is, because I think it's it's infinitely worse to be spying on people's private lives and dredging up their most um, sensitive and um, awful secrets to be splashed across the front page of a newspaper. And in a way, what was wrong with phone hacking is is that is is all the practices of the tabloids. It's not just the fact that they got the information like that; it's what they then did with it, and it's the information that they were after. And it's about people's sex lives and about people's marital breakups and about all sorts of horrible things that you would absolutely not want to have on the front page. Whereas this, uh, the De Stefano stuff is oh, like, I mean, in a way, who cares about what The Guardian or whoever it is, is, is having a conversation about in their ed editorial meeting. So I, I think the, the crime is in a way not so bad, but the principle is exactly the same and we don't need to withdraw to redraw guidelines. Another point I want to make about this is um, well, people cared, Paul, because it was a story and he got a story into the paper about it um, and also apparently lied to his readers over the sourcing of that story by saying that it was from people who had been there. I yeah, think I'm not that, saying we don't care at all. I'm just saying we care a lot less. That's all. Okay. I think another element of this is the clash of cultures between a web-based reasonably new journalistic outfit such as BuzzFeed and the venerable long-established Financial Times, which, if you don't know, is a business newspaper that is printed globally on pink newspaper and regards itself really as a bit of the intellectual elite of Fleet Street, possibly second only to The Economist. So it is full of Oxbridge graduates are you saying it's okay for, for BuzzFeed to engage in that kind of practice but not for the FT? No, I'm saying that there is a cultural clash between what uh, these various institutions would regard as being a story. And I did see a debate on Twitter. I don't think it was between members of the FT or BuzzFeed, but people basically saying, look, if you got access to this Zoom meeting 
someone must have given it to him and I can't see what he has done is that bad. Uh, and I think that is probably a younger digital generation outlook on things. If the technology is there, then you can use it. But Whereas, there are, it may well have been, but, I mean, journalists have to dig deep to break stories. Big stories don't just turn up, do they? They don't just turn up in your inbox tied up in a bow. So what's wrong with an investigative journalist actively seeking out a story and using things that the subject of the investigation might not like? I mean, isn't that what investigative journalists do? Uh, well, uh, but isn't that a description of phone hacking? It's hacked in a way, yes. Well, it's about the method you use. You just can't do that. It's not allowed. You can't bug someone's room or hack into their phones or hack into their Zoom conversations. That's not Journalists can't do that. They shouldn't do that. I mean, there, there and is and a if that's not in your book of ethics, if that doesn't get into your book of ethics, then you have no ethics at all, as far as I'm concerned. Monica, wouldn't this be like you giving me the keys to the UTS journalism office and I getting in with that said key after hours and rifling through everything to get some information that I could use for a good yarn. Yes, it would be. And I'm not advocating that he's done the right thing here, by the way. I'm just kind of delving into some of the ethical boundaries. But I'm also wondering, you know, how is it ethically different logging into a Zoom call compared to, say, getting backgrounded on the same Zoom call? Ah, well, it's completely different, I think, because if you're being backgrounded, then the person giving you the information is making a choice, aren't they? They are deciding what they wish to give you and what they don't. This way, it's sort of open slather, isn't it? So it's ethically okay if someone else does the naughty stuff but not the journalist. Is that what we're saying? No, because I don't think that is naughty stuff, is that if you have a person who is present at a meeting and then turns around and gives you an account of that, that's kind of basic journalism, isn't it? The De Stefano is stands accused of deceiving people, deceiving people who are on the call, deceiving his editors as to how he got the information, and deceiving his readers as to the sourcing of this information. I think that, um, and there was also a big question over the timing, wasn't it? In that he basically live tweeted the staff meeting as it was going on so that other journalists who were members of this organization that the Evening Standard or the Independent couldn't find out through official channels as to what had happened, but uh, found out through these tweets, which I think guess when you're losing your job would yeah. be the cause of some kind of angst. Yeah. So I do think there is a definite difference in uh, those two things that you've outlined. Hmm. And, 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 Paul, can I ask you, what if this was a secret meeting between, say, major crime bosses? You know, would a journo joining their Zoom meeting and busting the entire thing, would that be okay? Um, yes, I think it would. I mean, I think the, um, the ends do justify the means in a case like that. And, you know, police do that as well. So, I, so I don't think the ends justify the means in this case at all. I think you've got to accept that it is something that it is ethically wrong to do it. If there is some overriding justification, like you're exposing a major crime, then maybe you can do it. Well, it's the public interest uh, defence, isn't it? With the crime lords, there's clearly a public public interest defence into you know breaking the misuse of computer law or whatever. Um, but uh, public interest defence for this private corporate meeting, I'm less convinced. 
Well, on that note, thanks to my panel for a great discussion. Paul Barry, host of ABC's Media Watch and freelance journalist Stephen Brook. Thank you both. And thank you for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and we thank them for their continuing support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. And thank you, as always, to the producer, Anthony Dockwell. My name's Monica Attard and thank you for listening.